John 19, 17 through 27. We finally come to the cross. This is literally the crucial moment in the whole of history. We have taken our mission statement here at Woodside from 1 Corinthians 1, 23. What do we want to be all about? Four words. We preach Christ crucified. We have before us this morning the text in which Christ is crucified. So I will preach it. But I do it with some trepidation for a number of reasons. I'll give you two of those reasons. Uh, First, Cicero. He was a a Roman statesman and philosopher writing 2,000 years ago about the Roman practice of crucifixion says it is incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. That's sort of how I feel when I, as a preacher, approach Christ and the cross. My work is words, but but this Christ the King on the cross, it almost feels incapable of description by any word. My words will struggle to be fit to describe this. And I'm not talking here at all about the physical horrors of crucifixion. We will spend little time on that today. I'm talking about the difficulty of conveying the, the magnitude and the glory the urgency of what is happening here with my words in a way that will help you feel the weight of this and that will help you respond rightly to this. Second, I approach this text and this sermon with some apprehension because you think that you know this. I think that I know this. How many times have we read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion? How many sermons have we heard on the cross? How many times have you seen the passion of the Christ? Zero, I hope. Uh, Zero times is my hope. But the point is that as the great Jesse Rose said from this very pulpit many years ago, familiarity brings, breeds not so much contempt as, as apathy and as in, uh, indifference. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. All right, okay, what else? What's next? Nothing. Nothing is next. This is it. This is everything. We need to work hard today and every day to fight against this inclination to indifference. For as Paul says a few verses after our mission statement, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does that mean that Paul literally talked about nothing else but the cross? No, he talks about all kinds of other things, but he talks about all of those other things always in connection with the cross. We're about to start Proverbs in Sunday school, all about wisdom. Calvin writes, all the wisdom of believers is comprehended in the cross of Christ. This is the center. This is the crux of the matter. We have nothing. We are nothing without this. Pray that I can preach Christ crucified. Pray that you can see and believe Christ crucified. And I'm glad that we're considering John's account of the crucifixion today. As we've been seeing, John's focus is a bit different than the other Gospels. Hopefully this will help guard against the danger of over-familiarity. The crucifixion has been both so sensationalized and sentimentalized that it's easy to miss the real significance of what's happening here. It's harder to do that, though, with John. Because honestly... John's account is a little weird. I want you to pay attention to this when we read. First off, the execution is not described at all. All the gory details 
and the graphic descriptions that we love to give of the physical agonies of the cross as we seek to try and stir up emotion and elicit a response. John does none of that. And then the details that John does include are a little strange. I would not have written it like this. The pivotal event in world history is happening, and John spends most of his time on a sign, some clothes, and a mom. That's really our text. The crucifixion, a sign, some clothes, and a mom. Why? Well, let's see. We've seen again and again that John is a brilliant writer and a purposeful writer. Why are these the details that he chooses to emphasize? Well, let's take our cue this morning from the wonderful Heidelberg Catechism. Use the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm loving it. I used it for the Thanksgiving message. I'm using it again today. We talked about this in chapter 18. Why did the Jews insist on taking Jesus to have the Roman authorities put him to death? It's not because they weren't supposed to carry out the death penalty under Roman rule. They had no problem executing Stephen and James on their own not too long after this in the book of Acts. It's because the Jewish method of execution was stoning, while the Roman method of execution was the cross. Heidelberg Catechism, question 39. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Answer, yes, thereby I am assured that Christ took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. I think that John here is trying to emphasize the curse of the cross. We are going to consider this passage and some of its strange details in light of that curse. Five points. We will have to move quickly. Five C's and what we should see from them. We're going to consider the cross, the criminals, the charge, the close, and then the compassion. And we're going to see that Christ is cursed for you. Christ is cursed for you. Christ is king over you. Hey, don't forget Christ is cursed for you but it's because Christ is kind to you. So curse, curse, king, curse, kindness. That's our text. Christ is the kind, cursed king. Behold your king. Let's do so as we read his word. I will read it for you. John chapter 19. We will pick up at the end of verse 16. I will read through uh, through verse 27, we will save those wonderful words. It is finished for next week. So John 19, verses into verse 16 through verse 27. Pay attention. There is nothing more important that you could pay attention to. This is what God wants to say to you today. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, 
What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Let's stop there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to help us. Father, who is sufficient for these things? Uh, Father, this is the text. and This is the moment. Father, everything hinges upon this. Father, please help the preaching of your word this morning. Please help the hearing of your word this morning. Father, as always, there are so many things clamoring for our attention. Father, we are being trained by our culture and by our screens to not pay too close attention to anything, but for, to flit from one thing uh, to another. Father, help us to fix and focus our attention on Christ on the cross here in these next few minutes. Father, do uh, for us, do through me what we cannot do for ourselves, what I cannot do. Father, please work through your word. Please show us this Christ. Please draw us to him. Please fill us with great sorrow for our sin and great joy for Christ, our substitute. Father, work through your word, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, the cross. First, we see that Christ is cursed for you. Did you notice how concise John's account of the actual crucifixion is compared to John's account of the trial and the confrontation between the Jews and Pilate and Pilate and Christ? Why is that? We give most of our attention to the execution. John gives most of his attention to the trial. Why? Well, remember again why John writes 2031, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes to reveal the identity of this man, Jesus, is the point. And in some way, your very life depends on this man and on your believing in him. Jesus has asked the disciples the question, who do you say that I am? And John is giving us the answer here. In the whole book, of course, but especially here at the end, and especially at the trial, where we've been seeing that this whole thing revolves around the kingship of the Christ. 1833, are you the king of the Jews? 37, so you are a king. 39, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 19.3, hail king of the Jews. 14, behold your king. 15, shall I crucify your king? Who do you say that I am? This, this is Christ the King. The point of all the back and forth was to emphasize that. 
And we'll see it again in point three. The point of all the back and forth was to emphasize the contrast between that and this, between Christ the King and Christ the Crucified. Verse 16, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. But without the establishment of the identity of Christ as King first, all of this would mean nothing. Thousands upon thousands of people were crucified at the hands of the cruel Romans. Josephus tells us that the future emperor Titus in his siege of Jerusalem in the year 70 had thousands of Jews crucified in a short period of time. 500 of them in one day. He writes this in his Jewish wars. He says that the multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for the bodies. There were so many crucifixions that they were out of space for crosses and out of crosses for bodies. So there's nothing unique or special about the physical crucifixion of Jesus. It's not the what, but the who that matters. And so John keeps confronting us with the kingship of Christ. And remember, John also keeps confronting us with the control of Christ. This is the sovereign king over all, in control over everything that happens. And what happens? Into verse 16, into 17. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 18, there they crucified him. That's the extent of John's description of the act of the crucifixion. John does it differently than we do it today. But there are important details here that reveal what John wants us to see. Let's, let's start with the place. It says Jesus goes out. In the Greek, it says to the place of a cranion. Right? You have a cranium encasing that big brain of yours. That's the name. That's where this comes from, the Greek. It was translated Calvaria in Latin. That's where we get our word Calvary from. I used to always get Calvary and Cavalry confused. Cavalry comes from Cavalus, horse in Latin, Cavalla, ask Francesca, Cavalla, it's, it's in Italian. But this is not Cavalry, this is Calvary, and it comes from the Latin word for skull. I always wanted to name any boy that we might have Calvin. I'm not going to have a boy. So. But that also comes from this word. You Google the name Calvin and you'll find that it means bald, right? So bald like a, bald like a skull. Not the best name meaning, I guess, um, but it's the same root word. So good thing I'm not going to have a boy. Go, go girls. The girls, though, did name our van Calvin. So if you take it all the way back to its roots, our van's name is Skull, right? That's, so that's a, that's a bit morbid, but that's exactly what a skull symbolizes, Morbid, Moors, Latin, death. That's where we are, the place of death. Why is there death? Romans 5, 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. In the beginning, the Lord, the King, kindly warned us, kindly revealed to us that how his world works. He told us the truth. Or truth is just the revelation, the reflection of reality. Genesis 2.17, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sin 
reject me, rebel against me, the rightful and good king, reject the God of life, and you will die. This is the curse of death. And actually, you could argue this is, this is the whole theme of the Bible or, or the lens through which the whole of it could be understood. The lens of blessing and curse. Blessing is simply a pronouncement of good. Good is simply that which pertains to life. Curse is simply a pronouncement of bad, and bad is simply that which pertains to death. Everything is life and death. Everything is blessing or curse. And here is Christ the King marching out to the place of death, bearing, we're told, his own cross. Cross, staros in the Greek. Now, we can't be all that sure about some of the details, but it seems that typically the vertical beam was already in place in the ground at the site of crucifixion. It's likely that it was only the, the horizontal beam that was carried. That would have been heavy enough for an already brutalized and beaten man who has not slept. The idea that he was carrying the whole thing, the vertical and the horizontal, just seems impossible. But John wants to emphasize that Jesus bore his own cross. Now we know that he didn't make it the whole way. Matthew 27, 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. There's no contradiction here. It seems that Jesus started out bearing his own cross, and in his weakened, already brutalized state, he, he couldn't make it. Romans aren't going to carry it for him, so they compel this man, Simon, to do it. But John wants all your focus on Christ bearing his own cross. It's hard not to think of Genesis 22 there. God has commanded Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loves, and kill him, sacrifice him, death. Genesis 22, 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Verse 7, Isaac the son asks, Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham the father answers, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And here he's doing that very thing. Just like the wood is laid on Isaac, so here is the cross laid on Christ. And it's interesting that in the whole book of Acts, all about the gospel, all about the, the spread of the church through the proclamation of the gospel. Whole book doesn't use the word cross one time. Why? Because it uses a different word to emphasize our very point. Acts 5.30, Peter says to the Sanhedrin, Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 10.39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And on and on. Never cross in Acts. Always tree. Why? You know. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is all about the curse. John is drawing your attention to the curse. Here's the wood. Here's the tree being born by Christ himself. When you think cross, think curse. When you think curse, think sin and death and self. This is what you deserve because of what you have done. This reveals the great weight of the sin that we treat so lightly. See it in Christ himself 
bearing the cross, which represents your curse that he is bearing. This is Christ cursed. More. Point number two. The criminals. Repetition for emphasis. Christ is cursed for you. Look at verse 18 again. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. First off, I'm going to keep pointing this out. There they crucified him, period. That's the extent of John's description of the execution. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, doesn't do the thing that we do when it comes to the crucifixion. He doesn't get into the gory details. He doesn't try to elicit out of you an emotional response. We know that crucifixion was almost unbelievably horrible. Josephus calls crucifixion the most wretched of deaths, and he witnessed many crucifixions. We know that when they arrived at the place of the skull, the cross beam would have been set down in the ground. Christ would have now been laid on top of the wood that had just been laid on top of him. We know that nails would have been driven into his hands or his wrists. We know that the traditional shape of the cross is the most likely. Our Jehovah's Witnesses friends hate the cross shape and argue vehemently that Christ was crucified only on a stake, a a vertical pole, hands together above his head, and they depict it as one nail going through both hands. But as we'll see in 2025, Jesus talks about the mark of the nails, plural, in his hands, multiple nails. And we have plenty of ancient descriptions and ancient depictions of crucifixion that demonstrate that this would have been the traditional lowercase t or maybe possibly more of an uppercase t shape. But Jesus would have been nailed to the crossbeam on the ground. He would have then been raised up on and fixed onto the vertical beam. His feet would have then been nailed into that vertical beam, all of which would have been excruciating enough as nails drive through these these nerve-heavy parts of the body. And then would begin the, the long an often slow process of suffocating to death as you would struggle to breathe, hanging there. You'd have to pull yourself up, lift all your weight on those nails to get a breath before you collapse back down. It's, it's, it's horrible. But it's not the point. It's not what John focuses on. There's no reason to think that Jesus suffered any more physically than any other of the countless people who were crucified by the Romans. In fact... In a sense, you could at least argue that he, he suffered less as the slow, miserable process could often go on for days. And he was only on the cross for a few hours. The point is not the physical suffering, but it points us to the point. It is a sign, a window, a picture of something that we almost can't even begin to comprehend, of, of what is really happening here. The, the, the physical suffering, the, the wrath of God for sin, for our sin being being poured out on him. And this, this second point, his, his position and his placement and two others with him, he between them, between sinners, symbolically reveals the significance of his death and the real unimaginable pain that he is experiencing. All John says is that there were with him two others. It's the other gospels, again, that give us more details about these men. Matthew 27, 38 reads, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. 
That Greek word, robber, is the same word John just used in 1840 to describe Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So, I don't know. We can't know for sure. But were these guys part of Barabbas's crew? Were these maybe three insurrectionists together supposed to be crucified for their crimes? Possibly. But Barabbas, the robber, is not there. Why? Substitution. 1839, Barabbas has been released and Christ has taken his place. Here is Jesus, the Christ, the sinless one, standing in the place of a sinner, surrounded by sinners, one on his right and one on his left. Why? Jesus has already told us. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. That's Isaiah 53, verse 12. That's what's happening here. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He, Christ, is counted here as a transgressor to make intercession for transgressors. Jesus, surrounded by sinners, graphically displays why he has come and what he has come to do. There should be no confusion about this. There need be no theories of the atonement. We're being shown right here what he is doing. He has come to save sinners. He has come to die for sinners. It's a church in the area that denies that this is what Christ is doing on the cross. That makes it not a church because this is the main thing. His death is a death for sinners. Sinners who were cursed with death. And so here he is on full display. And his position and placement brings out so clearly all for all, brings this out so clearly for all to see death is the curse. Crucifixion is the cruelest, most graphic, most public means of death ever conceived and here is Christ crucified. Christ strung up to die. Christ is being cursed for sinners. Christ is being cursed for you. But really, what can that do? How can that help? Remember, it's not first the what, but the who that most matters. Who really is this man that is submitting himself to this what of crucifixion? Point number three. Let's consider the charge. Christ is king over you. Let's, let's shift our focus for a moment. This is our, our middle central point for a reason. Everything else revolves around this. Read everything else through the lens of this. It's, it's the coming together of curse and king that is so important. The point of crucifixion was to combine shame and pain in a very public warning way. Hey, this is what happens to enemies of Rome. This is humiliating this is agonizingly painful. This is for all to see uh, this humiliating agony. See it and tremble. Don't do what this man did because this is what will happen to you. Well, what did this man do? What's the charge? Well, remember last week, the charge is it's treason. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Verse 21, the Jews, the religious authorities, obviously don't like this. 
they want to change. Don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. 22, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So remember, the Jews have condemned Jesus for blasphemy. You being a man, make yourself to be God. But they want Jesus crucified by the Romans. They want Jesus demonstrated and displayed for all to see, hung up on a tree as cursed by God. No one will believe and follow a cursed Messiah, they think. And so they present Christ to the Romans as a threat to Caesar's throne. This man makes himself to be a king. This man opposes Caesar. Pilate knows he's innocent. Pilate wants to release him. Hey, Pilate, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. The threat's pretty clear. If you do not put this man to death, you will be put to death. That's, that's Pilate's dilemma. And he has made his choice. But we keep coming back to this issue of authority because everything keeps coming back to this issue of authority. I keep trying to come up with ways to convince you of the absolute importance of this issue of authority. I was just reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he claimed that authority is the great theme of the Bible itself. Exactly. Man, I wish I'd read that a few weeks ago. I'd have used it. Yeah, I just argued that you could boil down everything, the whole storyline of the Bible, to blessing and curse, and that's true, but it's based first on this. It's based first on authority. The most controversial and confrontational verse in the Bible. What is it? It's the first one. It's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Everything else follows and flows from that. Genesis 1 is the king creating his kingdom. As the king over all, he is sovereign over all. As the author of all, he is the authority over all. And then in Genesis 2, we zoom in and we see the king in intimate communion with his people as he graciously reveals himself to them and relates himself to them. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see both his kingness and his kindness, his transcendence and his eminence, his power and his love. And then we get to Genesis 3, and we see his created and loved creatures cast off his authority. That's all sin is. And that's what all sin is. It's all always about authority. Sin is substitution. Sin is the, the rejection of the rightful and legitimate authority, the, the God and king over all, and the attempt to be that God and king ourselves. This is why everything comes down to authority. This is why authority is everything. Because there is an authority, and it's not you, and it's not me. And there's nothing more wicked, more wretched, more unjust, more evil than knowing God, the God that is creator, king, and Lord, the God that is all glorious, all good, all kind, the, the very creator and sustainer of reality itself, of us, the one who is beauty and pleasure itself, knowing him and saying no to him. There's nothing worse. There's nothing more deserving of the curse. This is why the wages of sin is death. The casting off of benevolent authority, the benevolent authority of the one who is life leaves us only with death. And it all boils down to this issue of authority. Our current culture's defining characteristic is the casting off of any and every external authority and the celebration and the elevation and the affirmation that only the self, only the heart, only your truth, 
Only what you feel is most real. Only you are and can be your only authority. So our current culture's defining characteristic is nothing more than just the the fundamental nature of sin. In the very first lie, you will be like God. This is why John has so structured this account and so focused on the trial and this back and forth that has been all about authority. Pay attention to authority. Who is your authority? And how does whatever that is exercise that authority? The whole point of this is that this Christ is the authority. And how does he exercise that authority? What does he do? He dies. It's the who that is doing the dying that makes the death so significant. We just sang it. I didn't know we were singing it. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, one of the most profound verses in the Bible, Acts 3.15. Peter talking to the very religious authorities of our text not too long after this. He says to them, you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. All right, so that was, that was last week. That's their choice of Barabbas over Christ. That's the choice, their choice of a murderer, a giver of death, over the life giver. And then Peter goes on. Here it is. And you killed the author of life. And meditate on that contrast. The author of life put to death. The Greek word translated author is the word arche, which just means first or, or chief, and it's attached to the verb ago, which just means to lead. And archegos is the originator or the founder of something, the, the leader of something, the king of something. And this someone that they put to death was the originator, the founder, the leader, the king of life itself. It is he who is up on that tree. And so sure, Pilate wants to sinfully and spitefully continue to stick it to the Jews who just beat him in their battle of authority. What I have written, I have written. But first and much more importantly, God wants to graciously and clearly reveal the truth of what is really happening here and who is really hanging up on that tree. What God has written, God has written. Verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the charge is also the truth. The king of the Jews, written in the local language of the people, written in the language of empire and government, written in the language of culture and commerce for all to see and hear. This man hanging there to die is the king over all. He is the king over you. Who is your authority? And how does it exercise that authority? What's it doing for you? See here what Christ the King is doing for you. And see it also in point number four. Let's consider the clothes. Go back to the curse. Christ the King is cursed for you. Look at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. Stop. Strange details. Why the clothes? First, I generally assumed that there were five articles of clothing. Yet we're speculating somewhat here. Maybe a headpiece or a scarf, maybe sandals, maybe a belt, maybe an outer garment. So four soldiers, 
Uh, maybe each of them takes one of these four pieces of clothing. But that leaves the fifth. Also his tunic, which would have been sort of an undergarment, not, not like ours, but an article, kind of like a robe that was worn against the skin under all the other clothes. Rest of verse 23. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now people do all kinds of crazy things with this garment and to try to draw out some sort of symbolic significance for the seamlessness of, of the garment. Rome accused Luther 500 years ago of tearing Christ's seamless garment as he, as he tore apart the church in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Protestants have done equally stupid things with this verse at times. We're not going to do that because that's not the point. Four soldiers. Well, what do we do with the fifth garment? Verse 24. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Psalm 22, 18. And this is going to happen four times in the coming verses. We're going to see this for the next three weeks. This was to fulfill the scripture. We've seen that one of the main things John is trying to communicate is the control of Christ. And one of the ways that he does that is through the fulfillment of Scripture. What seems like a random, unimportant detail, soldiers throwing dice for clothes, actually carries great weight. John wants to keep reminding us that this is not an accident. Things are not out of control, regardless of how it may look. Christ is not the passive, acted-upon victim here. Everything that is happening is happening according to the sovereign plan and decree of the king. Acts 2, 23, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Everything we just read. And these details demonstrate that. These details, as the fulfillment of scripture written a thousand years before, demonstrate that. And we'll have opportunity to talk about this more in the weeks to come. But this just further proves that the whole of the scriptures, the Old Testament, are all about this Jesus, who is the Christ. David, writing Psalm 22 as a, a type of Christ, preparing us and pointing us forward to the fullness to come in the fulfillment of his words in Christ. And so when you read the Old Testament, and you must read the Old Testament, but when you read it, you read it always as all of it being about Jesus and all of it being there for the purpose of uh, getting us to Jesus. In just a couple of days, the risen Christ is going to come to a couple of disciples. And Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Christ, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament scriptures concern him. They're about him, this Christ. Luke 24, 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Law, prophets, Psalms, wisdom literature. That's the whole Old Testament. Jesus says, it's about me. And we see that here revealed in something as seemingly insignificant as the clothes. But is that all this scene means? Is there no significance to the seamless robe and the clothes? Is there any significance at all? Oh, of course there is. We don't have to get all crazy and allegorical. Think of the washing of the disciples' feet just the night before this in chapter 13, verse 4. 
Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Jesus then proceeds to wash the disciples' filthy feet, symbolically demonstrating what he was about to do to to wash their filthy souls. And the first thing he does is he lays aside his garments, demonstrating his humility, demonstrating his humiliation. This was servant's work. And here is Christ the King serving. And in the same way, in John 19, before his great work, he lays aside his garments. Hey, we have to understand this, much as we don't want to think about it. He lays aside all of them. Here are his clothes, not on him, but in the hands of the soldiers. And we know that the soldiers, the Romans, liked to strip their enemies to shame them. They would conquer a people and they would take the leaders and the generals and they would parade them naked through the streets. We know that they tended to crucify their victims naked to completely debase and shame and humiliate them. And so they did to Christ the King. This is the significance of the clothes. He's not wearing them. He's wearing no clothes. The first man and woman were once naked and they had no shame because they were right and righteous in God's eyes. They sinned. The first result of that sin, awareness of nakedness, fear, shame. We don't have time, but there are few things that reveal the depravity of our culture more than its love and celebration and exhibition of nakedness and immodesty. Church, consider your clothes and consider what you're taking in as entertainment and affirming and supporting and encouraging. Church, consider your clothes. But more important, church, consider Christ's clothes. He had none. He hung there naked, uncovered and exposed, debased and on display, humiliated and shamed. Because this is what sin is. This is what sin deserves. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is bearing the curse of nakedness for us. Remember in the garden after the fall, the first Adam's nakedness is graciously clothed and covered. But here the second Adam's nakedness is unclothed and exposed. Christ is stripped that we might be clothed. Christ is cursed that we might be blessed. That's the whole point of this. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so His bearing of that cursed tree, His placement between those cursed criminals, His nakedness revealing the the curse of the nakedness, all of these things are revealing this point. He is bearing sin for us. He is becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live righteousness by his wounds you have been healed this is the gospel this is the only hope for all mankind 
This is the only hope for sinners. And all mankind are sinners. Do you know this gospel? Do you believe in and love this Christ? Have you seen your sin and the curse that it is and deserves? Have you, have you felt your hopelessness and your helplessness to do anything about the curse that is death? Have you turned away from that sin and self and run to this Christ who is the King, who is cursed that you might be blessed, who dies so that you might live? Behold your crucified King and behold His kindness in His substitutionary curse bearing. I think that's really all that's being communicated in our final scene as well. Point number five, the compassion. Let's close and let's see that Christ is, Christ is kind to you. See how John emphasizes that here. In verse 25, we see the women standing at the cross. We won't get into it grammatically. It's possible here to count uh, two, three, or four women. It's a little bit unclear. I think four is the most likely we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have her sister, who is unnamed here. This could be Salome. This could be the mother of James and John. That could make John here Christ's cousin. Or just not 100% sure. So there's Mary. There's Mary's sister. There's another Mary, the wife of Clopas. And then the other Mary, Mary Magdalene. I think it's four. But whatever the count, the women are there. The disciples are not. Verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple, whom he loved standing by, stopped. One disciple is there, though. John is there. We've already established that the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. Maybe the cousin of Jesus, but definitely the author of our gospel, who in humility never names himself in this book. But John is there. He's at the cross, and he's going to tell us in verse 35, he who saw this has borne witness his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That you may believe. Again and again, that you may believe. John is there, and he wants you to hear what he has seen, and he wants you to believe, and he wants you to hear and see and believe in the kindness of your king. Back to verse 26. Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Again, without getting into all kinds of crazy speculation, without trying to come up with some sort of symbolic significance for Mary and John, maybe Mary represents the Jews and John represents the Gentiles, or John is a disciple of the church, and so here we have proven that, that Mary is the mother of church. Yeah, people do all kinds of crazy things with this text. Let's do the simple and wonderful thing with this. Christ the King, the God of all power, and authority, the one from, through, and to are all things, the Son of God who has taken on flesh, who is suffering unimaginably physically, the one who is suffering far more unimaginably spiritually as he bears the curse of sin and the wrath of God for my sin, the one who is moments away from death is in that moment mindful of his mother, and he's mindful of John. The one who is literally bearing the weight of the world's sin as at the same time caring for and concerned for others. This is Philippians 2. This is counting others 
more significant than yourself. This is looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. All of our problems, all of our conflicts always come down to looking to our own interests and not to the interests of others. All of them. See here the mind of the Christ who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me, for Mary and for John. What kindness. What compassion. Let's not sentimentalize this. Let's not miss the depths of this. Let's think for a second. Who is he speaking to? Who is he having compassion on? Who is he focused on and concerned with here in his final minutes with what he's doing? Sinners. His focus is on the very ones who put him on the cross. He's up there because of them. More so even than Pilate or the Roman soldiers or the Jewish authorities. We are going to work through the doctrines of grace in the new year and we will walk through in detail who Christ is really dying for and why that is. But for now, simply know that those who would not repent and believe in him, they aren't really the reason why he is up on that tree. Mary is. John is. You are. I am. Horatius Bonar, great Scottish hymn writer. We sing his all praise to him, the God of light. We should sing his, "'Twas I that did it. I see the scourges tear his back. I see the piercing crown. And of that crowd who, spite and mo- who smite and mock, I feel that I am one.'" Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. I put him up there. You put him up there. Your sin put him up there. And because of God's love, God put him up there. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him for me. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. There's the kindness and the compassion. There's the love. His focus on them at the end of the cross is his focus on sinners. Love seeks the good of the loved. And here is God himself seeking the eternal and ultimate good of his people. And so before his final wonderful words from the cross next week, it is finished. The last thing he does is display his care and concern and kindness for those who are his. Behold your king. Behold your kind and cursed king. The cross and the identity of the one on that cross, and the reason why he is on that cross, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can trust him with anything and with everything. I don't care what it feels like right now. I don't care what you're experiencing. I don't care how distant God feels or how bad your circumstances seem. God cares about your good infinitely more than you do. God knows what is your good infinitely better than you do. God pursues your good infinitely better than you can. Trust this God. Listen to him and love him 
First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And how clearly we see that here with Christ on the cross. The care of the king who was cursed that you might be blessed can completely change and transform your life. Whatever your circumstances, read them through the lens of the cross. If you have this Christ, if you have the love of this Christ, life in this Christ, then you have everything. Behold your crucified king and be glad. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ, our king. Father, may these never be abstract, mere intellectual exercises. Father, may you capture our attention and arrest our hearts with the beauty and the glory of this king, seeing his kindness revealed to us and his concern for us, seeing his his love revealed to us and his being cursed for us. Father, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in this Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, may this thrill our souls. May we desire this Christ. May we delight in his person and in his work. Father, forgive us for being so caught up and so consumed by such relatively minor things in comparison to this. Father, what if there is a soul? And what if that soul goes on into eternity? What if you are good and glorious? And what if we have rejected you in our sin? Father, what if you have provided the way for us to find life and joy and peace in you? Father, show us Christ. Draw us to Christ our King, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.